21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Regarding your company, was it just leap of faith or are there any aspects, elements of analogs or antilogs? Did you copycat some of uh, successful examples or antilog as uh, you wanted to be 180 degrees uh, different? So that was your strategy. Yeah, 180 degrees different. That's usually my, uh, my, uh, this are usually the cards I've been headed in life. In general, I am a, I'm a person who is who likes to question the status quo, does not like to do what the ma- what the majority is doing. I'm a robotics software engineer in my background. I ended up in the US uh, doing my graduate school and uh, I ended up in marketing, running marketing for three B2B uh, companies. And I realized this, the idea for MetaData didn't come up in like the middle of the night, like I had this like cool dream and I just woke up the next day and I was like, I have to build this, no. So I was like, I worked as the head of marketing for three companies for about eight years, and I saw that the tools and the the tools that I had in my you know in in my uh, in my disposal to be able to grow the companies that I worked for, they were so archaic. I was, I think most, most entrepreneurs, most B2B marketing folks today are using tactics, strategies, tools, and even data that is so out of date. Uh, and the reason for it is because the consumer market versus the B2B market, the consumer market is huge. So Coca-Cola's advertising budget is larger than probably most of the B2B companies together. And because of that, the sophistication that Pepsi and Nike and Coca-Cola have versus the sophistication that even the CMO of Zoom Info, or Zoom, sorry, Zoom Communication has that we're using right now is night and day. And because I was a software engineer and because I knew what is possible and what is available, I saw this crazy gap in between. That was my crazy motivation of starting Metadata. Um, and and I, although I knew it's going to be an uphill battle because, well, first of all, starting a company is not easy, but also starting a company in a space where there are thousands of technology companies, like the marketing technology space you know, in the MBA, they they told they, they teach you about like blue ocean and red ocean. You know, like blue ocean, like you have all this opportunity. Red ocean is like you have all these bodies because this is just like a super fragmented, uh, busy busy market. Although I knew it's a very busy market and there are all these bodies, all these companies that never actually survive the next year. I still started a company in this space because when you start a company 
in a, in, a, in a space that is busy when there are many players, if you are actually building something that brings me to your initial question that is 180 degrees different than the status quo, if you're able to actually build something that is going to be significantly different, fundamentally different than the status quo, and people are going to adopt it and get to better results, you are going to own the market. So when I look at companies like Salesforce, HubSpot, uh, you know, companies of of that of that sort that they took something that was, you know, for 60, 70 years it was done one way and they completely changed the way it's been done. Yeah, it's difficult. You have to like, educate the market. You have to convince them there is a better way, so on and so forth. But if you get there, when you get there, you have a $10 billion company in your hands. And so that was my motivation of starting Metadata to bring all the sophistication that and the technology capability that the consumer world, the, the marketing and consumer world has and bring it to the grayer, more legacy, boring world of B2B and bring the two together so that you can apply the same technology, same sophistication and also same creativity. You know, when I don't know if you've ever watched that show, uh, Mad Men, it's a, it's a show about these advertisers, super cool show. You know, you see these people in the in 1950s, 1960s, walking around in, in suits, drinking whiskey all day, getting drunk and, and getting millions of dollars for every meeting. And I was like, this is cool. Is this what marketing is like? When you sign up for marketing, that's what you, what you hope your life is going to look like. But when you actually end up in B2B marketing, you find that it's a very technical, repetitive job that includes a lot of solutions, lots of technology, lots of data. And there is actually no reason for that. Even the B2B marketing world can be super, super exciting, but in order for it to be exciting, you have to outsource all the boring or more technical, repetitive, mundane tasks to a computer. And that's essentially the reason I started Metadata. So manual and repetitive tasks are a pain point for many marketers. Could you provide some insights into the most common time-consuming tasks in particular in business-to-business marketing and how metadata addresses them. Yeah, so imagine that you are a VP of marketing for a Series B you know, company with 100 people. You're at, let's say, $10 million, and your job this year is to get from $10 million to $20 million. So as the CMO or VP of marketing, your number one job is to generate pipeline for your friend here who is, who is in charge of sales. And they want you to give them a big piece of pipeline. They want to get thousand demos every month so that they can sell to those people. In order for you to, to do that, you have to start running this crazy circus of many, many shows. You have to start running Google AdWords. You have to start creating content and SEO, and you have to set up attribution. You have to set up campaigns on, on social and display and run account-based marketing and start doing social posts. And before you know it, your day is full of technical tasks. You just don't know even how to get out of that of that mess. And now it's not only setting up a campaign one time, it's setting up 100 campaigns. And it's not just setting up like 100 campaigns one time, it's auditing the campaign day in, day out and checking, is this campaign actually leading to pipeline or is it just causing impressions and clicks and leads? And you have to wake up in the middle of the night when something breaks and you have to fix the UTM tags because if the UTM tag is not there, then there is no attribution. You don't actually know where this demo came to life. You have to set up lead enrichment because someone signs up to your form, you put a form out there, you're collecting an email, maybe they put a Gmail and you actually don't know anything about that person. You have to start enriching the leads. There are a lot of technical, repetitive, mundane tasks that are involved around marketing. 
And although they're not exciting, if you don't do them, nothing is going to work. And so what we're doing at Metadata is we're, we're there to essentially scale your marketing without you having to 10x your team. We essentially are going to abstract everything that is complex, technical, and mundane. So with metadata, when you have metadata in place, you never have to log in again to Google AdWords, to Facebook, to LinkedIn. You never have to buy a piece of a CSV file, a data set, and enrich it and then upload it as an audience. You never have to like start setting up all these keywords or settings in the advertisement. You don't have to set up UTN tags and attribution. All of that work goes out the window. You can focus on what types of campaigns do I think have a good chance of working? What kind of image? What kind of message? What kind of content? And then you let metadata do the work. You tell it, hey, here are my content pieces. Here are my creatives. Let me define the audience that I'm going after. I'm going after CEOs in companies who are using these technologies. You have these many employees. They are in these locations. Great. You have three months. I'm trying to get... $30 million in pipeline, I have $2 million in ad spend, go. And what the system will do, it will start permutation. It will start experimenting all day long. It will start experimenting. Let's say you have a possibility of a thousand campaigns. If you have a possibility of a thousand campaigns as a human, you're going to choose the 10 that you think you're going you're gonna to win with because you don't have time and capacity to run a thousand campaigns. That's humanly impossible. So you're going to choose 10 and you're going to hope that out of those 10, one or two are going to be successful. While in fact, the chances are that out of these thousand, there are maybe 50 best campaigns. And what the system will do, it will actually scan through all the permutations. It will use multivariate experimentation to fine tune into the 50, 60 campaigns that yield the most results, the most pipeline for you for the least amount of money. If you think about the same systems that are being used for stock, investment or even gambling they use what is called arbitrage they find out all the possibilities and they start experimenting really 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 fast and then they fine tune into the winners that's what we do we give the power back to the marketers versus we're taking it from the channels themselves When you speak about starting experimenting, what technology is it based on? AI involved? So we use uh, uh, multiple technologies. So we use multivariate experimentation, which is essentially a Cartesian multiplier. So think about when you have 10 creatives and you have 10 pieces of content, when you multiply that, now already you have 100 experiments. Now you're saying, okay, I want to try it one time with Facebook, one time with LinkedIn, one time with Google, boom. Now you have 300 experiments. And you're saying, let's say I have five types of audiences I'm going after. I'm going after you know, these job titles. I'm going after competing technologies. I'm going after companies who are looking for a particular solution in the market right now. Let's say you have three audiences, boom. Now you have 900 potential campaigns. So already you have a pretty big universe of campaigns. So what technologies are we using? First of all, we're using multivariate experimentation. We're using heuristics. We're using artificial intelligence in terms of we have a decision tree that all day long executes campaigns for you. Metadata is a different kind of solution than the usual where you don't have to log in and click a button for it to work. It's working in the back end all the time, like a robot. 
And then uh, another thing that we're using is machine learning. So in order for for our customers to only spend their time and money on the right companies and the right people, what we've done is we created a machine learning model that encompasses all the data sources in B2B. So think about any data sources that you're familiar with that has thermographic data, technographic data, or buyer intent data. We connect to it, we pull it in, and then we normalize the data so that instead of you going to LinkedIn and using one criteria, Facebook one criteria, Google one criteria, different criterias, here you go to one place, you create the audience, and the criteria is automatically distributed to all those different channels. So we use a combination of AI, heuristic, machine learning, and of course, some statistical data like uh, <clears throat> multivite experimentation. For entrepreneurs uh, new to advertising, what is the typical minimum budget required for your agency services combined with ads on various social platforms? Are we looking at the sum closer to or exceeding 10K? Yeah. So what I always say is think about it as, as like money and money management. So like if you have $100 in your bank account, are you going to hire a money manager to make the investments for you to get your high return? Probably not. It's a hundred bucks. You have to figure it out yourself. You know, maybe you want to invest in 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 a kid's you know lemonade stand. If you have ten thousand dollars, maybe you want to start investing. You want to, you want to open a Robinhood or Fidelity or have the app. You start putting buying those stocks and hope that they grow. But if you have a million dollar, maybe that's a good entry point when you're going to start um, having it someone so that they give you. 10%, 12% return versus 3% return the bank will give you, which is lower than inflation. Um, with metadata or in general with ads, I always say, if your spend is smaller than, I would say $10,000 per month, you should not be using any piece of software to optimize that spend. You should yourself go into one channel and then start experimenting on your own. And uh, what I will say is, with metadata, you should not buy the full platform because it's an overkill for your for your budget. What you can use, we have a simple uh, software. You can write a credit card for the website to use, which is called MetaMatch. And what MetaMatch will help you do is, even for those $10,000, it will make sure that every dollar spend goes to the right person within the right company. So you can make sure that you're not spending your advertising dollars on the wrong people because that's just a waste. Whether the experiment is like the right content, the right creative, so on and so forth, you can find out on your own. But you make you want to make sure that every dollar that comes down, that comes out of your dollar spend, is going to the right person and the right companies. Because even if you don't convert them, at least you know the right people saw it. When your spend is 30, 40 grand, that's when a month, that's when you want to start investing in a piece of software like metadata, because Within a few months, you will already pay for it. You know, within a few months, if you cut your if you cut your customer acquisition by half, which is very common for our customers, let's say you spend a hundred grand a month, which is not a big deal, right? Like for a company like Zoom, like they probably spend like much, much more than that. So let's say, but let's just say a million a year. If you are able to make twice as much from that million a year, you just basically as long as you pay less than half a million 
for that piece of software, it's already like return investment is positive. And so that's usually where I would, uh, where I put the, the kind of the numbers, the entry points. Success story. So success stories, uh, there are two, there are two values that you get from, from a software like metadata. Uh, the first one is growth. So if you're a hyper growth company, <clears throat> you're trying to move from 10 million to 20 million. That's like a classic, classic, uh, classic year in a startup, right? The, the, the venture capital that invested in you wants you to grow at least 50%, ideally 100, 200% every year. So let's say you want trying to, to grow from 10 to 20. If you're using a piece of software like metadata, and we have many, many success stories like that, you're able to grow predictably. So if, if the most important thing for you is to get to that $20 million and you're willing to pay for that growth, metadata can guarantee it for you because it will find all the channels, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Google, YouTube, LinkedIn, it will find the channels where you can find your, your buyers and it will, sh it will just bombard them with your content, with your creative everywhere they go and it will guarantee that you you'll pull those people to you and they'll come to you as an inbound lead. Inbound lead is like the holy grail for a VP of marketing. And you know, the right person from the right company coming into their website and signing up to get a demo, that's like the dream for, for a VP of marketing. And that's what we're able to, to monetize. That's what we're able to create for those companies. So predictable growth is the number one. We even use it for our own. I remember in 2021 when we grew super fast, like 250%, we just had this experiment. I was just like at this thought, can I double it if i if i could i couldn't actually take all the all the all the you know all the inquiries but if we could if we were a bigger company do i actually have the appetite in the market and we just turned on the knob in metadata a little bit more and boom we moved from like 400 demos to 800 demos for those two months it was crazy that ability to have elasticity to grow and shrink according to how much growth you want to have that is by far the number one value of metadata. Any mid-market company, that if they can control their growth, that's huge for them. Right after they do that, the second most important thing is customer acquisition cost. So the venture capital will be very happy if you grow from 10 to 20 million. But when you tell them, I want to grow from 20 to 40 million, they're going to tell you, amazing. Yes, let's go do that. But can you cut the cost a little bit so that it will become more sustainable? And so that's the second thing you get from metadata. You can guarantee the, the predictability of the growth, but you're using experimentation and economies of scale and arbitrage to essentially find the most profitable areas where you can grow. For example, many companies think, especially B2B companies think that Facebook is not working for B2B. Oh, Facebook is about politics. It's about consumer brands, which is true. Facebook is aiming all of their advertising power towards consumer brands and politics because that's where the money is. Why would they be spending money building all these thermographics and technographics for like 8% of, of the market spend? But thankfully, a solution like Metadata allows you in MetaMatch, even if you're not using the full platform, MetaMatch, even if you're promoting your podcast and you have five grand per month, you want to make sure that your message goes to the right person within the right company. So when you layer the audience that MetaMatch gives you on Facebook, boom, you just made Facebook, LinkedIn. And because you're one of the only marketers who is advertising on Facebook in a B2B context, 
you're not competing with 10,000 other advertisers. You're competing with 100. And when you're only competing with 100, the bid goes down. And so many, many, many of our customers were able to cut their acquisition costs by third to a half and get to just get to unit economics that are fundamentally different than what they had before. Uh, and that makes them sustainable and very, um, uh, very valuable for, for investors. Uh, there are a few things that we that that we do. We sign up on the one percent pledge. Uh, we usually help our local communities. We actually painted a school in our history. We support some causes. Uh, there is a, a nonprofit for women empowerment that uh, we support in Silicon Valley. Um, we have a, a dollar amount that we invest every year in nonprofits. We have a committee, and employees bring in. Uh, you know, causes, and we just vote on it, and we just pay them. It's very simple. Like, uh, it's just like invest in in them out of our balance sheet. But I would say the most important one, to be honest, is empowering our people. So we have about hundred people or so working in the company from all over the world. We have people from legitimately, I think, 22 countries. And so uh, I think the biggest thing that we're doing is creating a safe uh, growth lab for our employees where people feel comfortable working on their weaknesses. And it doesn't have to be a business weakness. Of course, it's super easy to work on like negotiation skills and or your commercial skills and blah, blah, blah. That's great. Communication skills. Okay, that's great. You can work on that. But what if someone has a health issue or a psychological issue or trauma or a problem at home? And we actually have no problem diving into those. Of course, we're, you know, we stay legally safe from, from getting involved where we shouldn't be. Uh, but if the employee or the staff member wants it, you know, we sent, I sent someone to like a Tony Robbins uh, event, you know, because that person was burnt out. They had limiting thoughts. They were depressed. They were actually thinking about leaving. I told them, look, you want to leave, you can leave. But I'm going to give you a one month free. You're going to get a salary. I'm going to send you to San Diego to do Tony Robbins. Go check it out. It'll make you feel very interesting. You'll walk on calls. You'll have some, some hypnosis, hypnosis. And you come back and if you feel like you want to still leave and go do something else, that's fine. God bless you. And if you want to stay because now you feel empowered, then stay. And uh, and the effects of those actions, they go way beyond work, right? The person goes to the Tony Robbins or does some ayahuasca or does meditation or does whatever they need to do to, to fight their demons. Yeah, they're going to be better workers, but they're going to be just better humans. They're going to be better uh, moms and, and husbands and parents and whatever. And uh, that, I think, outside of the investments and painting schools and all that stuff, which is cool, I think that's the biggest one. If you're building humans, done. And what about you as a CEO 
founder, what personal development practices or strategies have been instrumental in your journey to grow metadata? Not just grow metadata, but grow yourself as well. Oh, where do I begin? How much time do you have? I think, uh, you know, I was just talking, I was just talking to a good friend of mine about, you know, some of the challenges I have in the company. And he says something that I a million percent agrees with. He tells me, Gil, every problem in the company is just a reflection of a problem that you have. And it's so classic true. It's a classic cliche true. I've, I think I found out about it like five years ago, maybe, maybe two years into the, into the business because every time I had a problem that manifested in the business, I was like, why? Why am I having this problem? Why am I having this problem? I would smoke a joint. I would walk around town. I would go somewhere. I would go some, And then I would like, ah, shit, yes, I'm dealing with this thing. And I'm not like, I'm not solving it. I'm just like lingering from it. And until I solve it, the company problem would be, not be solved. And every time it was again and again and again. So for myself, I realized that managing my own psychology is by far the biggest thing I can do for the company. If I'm not in a good place, if I'm afraid, if I have fear, anxiety, doubt, if I'm angry, if I'm pessimistic, then there's nowhere to go. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, use for me doing meetings and raising money and telling people what to do because I'm coming with like bad energy to begin with. It's just like toxic, toxic shit going everywhere. And so I learned that I need to manage my own psyche. I need to be nice to myself. Sometimes I wake up not great day and that's okay i need to forgive myself sometimes i have to deal with something and i need not to be afraid of it and so i did a few things that worked for me over the years first is having a framework having a framework so whenever i'm feeling out of control i just have to think about the framework okay what do i usually do when i'm in this situation so i have a few rules that i know always work that are always true one for example is never make decision out of fear super simple when i'm fearful and i have anxiety any decision I make is a shitty, it's a bad decision. Always. It's a classic fundamental rule. The first thing I need to do is get outside of that mindset. And, you know, it may take me half an hour. It may take me half a day. It may take me a week to get out of it. But until I do, I'm not making that decision. That's not to say I have months now to wait until I'm in like 10 out of 10 happiest person in the world. No, I don't need to be like the happiest person in the world. I just need to not be in tunnel vision mode. So that's, for example, one of the one of the one of the things I learned. Um, another thing that I've learned is to not romanticize the whole idea of being a, a, a lonely entrepreneur. Sometimes we, as the CEOs and founders, we like love the idea. Oh, we're on our own. It's us against the world. You know, there's no one else understands how the, the problems we're dealing with. Guess what? You're not the only fucking person entrepreneur in the world. There are like. Tens of thousands of people just like you who are dealing with exactly the same problem. They might be in a different industry, different company sizes, but every person, doesn't matter if you're IPO and you're making 100 million or you're just started and you're making 10,000 a year, you're dealing with the same FUD, same fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so talking to other entrepreneurs, talking to other CEOs, I actually used to have a podcast that was about category creation, which ended up being about therapy sessions for CEOs. We would just, a bunch of us would go, go on a Zoom and just talk about our day-to-day -day challenges. And just by talking about it and sharing with other CEOs, again, as cliche as it sounds, it will just evaporate. Some of the stress would evaporate and it would actually help each other uh, solve, solve the challenges. So like having a, a, a network, a, a support network, boom, another huge thing that helped me. And I will say uh, last but not least is having coaches. 
So one thing that I've learned that is super helpful is to have someone that you look up to. You have to look up to them. They have to have experience in your, in your area and you have to trust them. And when you have trust, you look up to them and they have some experience in your area, you start working with them every week. You tell them all the shit you're going through, the dilemmas you have, the problems that you have, and they can just 10x you. Just by having this conversation, by sharing the, what they've done and giving you some solutions and asking you the right questions, boom, it's just going to fly up so much more, so much faster. And so uh, framework, coaching, and uh, you know, have, have the ability to have a nice support network has been some of the things that I've been using in the last seven years to grow. If you're an entrepreneur and you you have a B2B company and you're trying to grow it, even if your budget is like $1,000 per month, I would recommend that you make sure that every one of those dollars goes to the right companies and the right people. You can take a look at this uh, our product called MetaMatch. You go to metadata.com, you click on MetaMatch, the first three audiences are for free. So you don't have to do anything. You just get the three audiences. And you can start targeting the right people within the right companies. And you're just making sure that they spend it going the right place. Second thing is, if you're a marketer or a CEO in an early stage company or even middle stage company, and you're looking for the best practices, you're looking to learn what is modern marketing looks like. We have a conference every year. Last time we had 7,500 people signed up to it. This year, I think we're going to have 10,000 people. It's free. It's called the Demand Conference. It's in October, I think the end of October. Uh, you go to our website, you sign up for demand, and it's a full day of uh, workshops and thought leadership and just great content. Similar to how Inbound, if you know Inbound by HubSpot, it's a great event. We're replicating, it's a lot of value add, uh, not commercial kind of event. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Imagine a space where triumphs, trials, and tales of entrepreneurship come alive. Welcome to the 21st Century Entrepreneurship Podcast, a gold awarded journey hosted by Martin Piskorik, connecting with listeners in 95 countries and ranking in the top 0.5% of all podcasts. Join our exclusive community, elevate your perspective, and embark on the path to success.